Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, to be clear, as always, I'm not actually a rabbi. I'm, uh, I am ordained as a spiritual director, a spiritual companion or counselor, as it were, uh, through the Olive Program in the United States. And if you ever want to find out more about that, just go to olive.org and check out what they do. But uh, there's rabbinic program, rabbinic pastor program, and spiritual direction program, which is the one I took. But if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be the kind of rabbi that made me go, oi, really? Seriously? God is a guy and he's talking to me specifically. And it, so that always turned me off. So I always looked for something that had more of an experience to it than a lot of stuff in the head. So I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. There, I've clarified yet again. I don't know why I do that. It's like I have fear that, you know, an Orthodox lawyer is going to knock on my door and go, come here, I want to talk to you for a second, come here. So I accept it. Um, the show, Not That Kind of Rabbi, is sponsored in part by Kaplansky's Delicatessen, Great Mustards, Great Deli in the airport at Pearson International Terminal 3. But you can order all kinds of things. I've got a Kicking It Old Shul t-shirt from Kaplansky's Deli. You might want one of those. You can order it online at kaplansky.org. Um, and uh, put NTKR as the promo code and you'll get 10% uh, off on the purchase because you're listening to it here. Um, as well, they have signature mustard packages, spicy baseball uh, what was the other one that I just had? Oh, I can't even remember. There's four in a pack. You can order those. I have two pa two packs at home right now. The kids go through them like nothing. So I love it. And you will too. And I thank uh, Kaplansky's for being our sponsor. So the plague continues. If you're still listening to this in the time of the plague and somehow, unfortunately, I think that time is longer than we think it was going to be. And it is um, squeezing different and interesting things out of me and the people around me. It's so um, unnatural to walk down a sidewalk of a street, see someone coming and cross the street purely because you don't know if they've got something you can't see, taste, or feel that might kill you. And when I think about that, it's really a profound thing that we've internalized as a new normal. And it was, what it did is it made me think about one of the things I deeply care about, which is the effects of extreme climate destruction on the planet. And I think to myself, I've spent 10 years trying to convince people that this is more than a burning issue, it's here. Um, and I can't, they don't wanna know. There's a book called, uh, I Don't Even Think About It by George Marshall, a climate uh, communication specialist from the UK. And people just can't take it in so why can they do other things that are extraordinary measures when it comes to a, a pandemic? And I realize it's because there's an idea that you personally may die almost immediately if you get this. And the climate change conversation is, I'm sure it's somewhere over there. It's not here, it's somewhere over there. And because of that, we kick it down the road and politicians allow us to kick it down the road because they'd rather take care of today's problems than tomorrow's. And it made me think about how we think about life. I heard an indigenous elder yesterday talking about why she bothers with the investigation in Canada into the missing and murdered indigenous women's cause, which is horrible, a horrible thing. And she said, I just think everything through the lens of my 12 year old granddaughter. That's how I see it all. What kind of a life do I want for my 12 year old granddaughter? So, the thinking in native circles is of seven generations of thinking. And if we start thinking that way about all of our problems, we'll stop thinking about who's going to get elected in two years time and one year time and four year times and start thinking about what legacy we wanna leave for people. And we need a moral compass for that. It's hard, it's very hard. So I worry. I worry that we're doing okay on this pandemic in some times, in some moments, certainly in Canada. I worry very much when I think about the United States where it has been conflated with this notion of freedom. Freedom? Virus doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a conservative or an NDP or, it's a virus, it's agnostic. 
it'll take you or not take you. There's nothing to do with freedom. It's to do with obligation and responsibility. And if you think about that for a second, we have devolved in our conversation about what we owe and what is owed to us to taxpayers. I'm a taxpayer. This is for the taxpayers. We're not taxpayers. That's an economic unit of measurement, taxes. We are citizens. A taxpayer only has rights. Give me more. I'm not going to pay for it, but give me more. But a citizen has rights, duties, and obligations, which is the same thing that you have if you were part of a congregation of people in a religious setting. You have rights, but you have duties and you have obligations. And if you only go to the, to the synagogue or the church or the temple to decide whether or not you like the rabbi, I don't know, this one's okay. I like the last one a lot more than I like this one. Or I really like this one, that last one. They're not a commodity. They're not for your consumption. They're there to help all of you come together. You have a responsibility to make that happen. So the more we can empower ourselves to do something small for us, for someone else, for the planet, for the universe, the more perhaps we can get into something that is a little more hopeful in at least my eyes. So that's my thing for this week. Happy I got that. I had no idea it was in me, but now it's out and I feel better. It's like a cyst. So that's my thing. Now, I want to introduce uh, a man who I deeply respect, uh, who I met in the first week of the ordination program that I took at Olive in Colorado after a 17 hour trip that took forever. And I wanted to back out about five different times. Just thought maybe if I just, you know, I can tell them the flight was seven hours delayed and then there was a ground stop and come on, I can't, because I was afraid that I wasn't gonna be smart enough or Jewish enough or learned enough to do this program. And I didn't see anyone the night they did the opening ceremony because I was still in the air. Uh, but I got there and the next morning in a shy way, I came into the room and sat down and this rabbi started talking, singing with a guitar and extemporaneously thinking and talking and singing with a guitar. And I thought, who is this person? This, I feel so good. And all of it melted away. I didn't feel like I was under anyone's scrutiny. I felt like I was being welcomed. And I'll never forget that. And we've had a relationship ever since in all kinds of ways. And I really am looking forward to talking to Rabbi Sean, Reb Sean, Reb Sean Zevit, a nice Canadian boy who for some reason stays in the United States way past his due date. I have no idea why he's doing this. But there he is. Why are you doing that? Why? This is my first question to you. At least you, at least you didn't say exp expiration date. <laughs> Why do you stay in the United States? <laughs> well, <laughs> my launchment, it's, it's such a bracha, such a blessing to be uh, uh, with you um, here on your, your podcast. And uh, you know, I'm going to respond to that evocation. It's not really a question. It's more of a statement and a cry <laughs> to heaven. But, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you, uh, one of my favorite movie lines, you had me at hello as well when you walked in that, that room that day. And, um, you know, and even the name, uh, you know, all the, um, the exposition that you shared with us and the name of your program, Not That Kind of Rabbi, um, you know, is uh, this is my kind of program as well, I would say, and your title. Uh, it reminds me about at least half of the B'nai Mitzvah that come through my door, or the B'notei Mitzvah, as we start to mix genders and search for a gender-fluid Hebrew, uh, you know, who are like, I'm not sure I should be here, I don't really believe, I'm not sure there's a God, and so on. And, you know, I remember when I was uh, in rabbinical school, I went to the Recon came to Philadelphia, actually, in 1993 from Toronto, originally coming, uh, being born in Winnipeg, where all my grandparents and great-grandparents emigrated uh, in the 19-teens uh, from Poland, Ukraine, Russia, uh, Austria. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I remember as a young rabbi in training, someone would ask or share their spiritual struggle, and I would try to pull a quote here and a this there. And then I remember... Um, uh, being with uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, a blessed memory, 
who was like the, the grandpa, the Zeta of the Jewish Renewal Movement, and um, where I also got private ordination along with my uh, ordination, excuse me, from RSC. And he said, oh, t someone said, I just don't believe in God anymore. And he said, oh, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And 45 minutes later, the person had finished sharing that. And he smiled and said, you know, I don't believe in that God either. Let's talk <laughs> some more. And the person went away as if though they had been given a, you know, a download from Sinai. And he said one sentence. And so I really tried to learn from that. And, and you know, with people of all ages, but I think specifically of our young people, there is also an image of that we internalize those of us that seek the spiritual leadership path or spiritual, you know, guidances in your case, uh, just another form of that, of who we should be in the world. And then the images, mostly pediatric, as Mordecai Kaplan would say, most of us live pediatric spiritual lives right. formed when we're kids. And we never grow into the mature spiritual arc is a tougher path to go because it means we have to let go and not be solely divine by those moments or that rabbi that said X to us when we right. were eight or that that way that the Havdalah candle caught flame and you know, burnt down our favorite <laughs> toy and like God had sent that Havdalah candle to destroy right. my toys. I will never but, believe again. But I, I want to stop you there because this is a major issue, I think, in every religion is pediatric spirituality that... And, and I want to get your thoughts on what we do about this idea that you're told these things and they're portrayed to you as miraculous and uh, otherworldly and uh, no sense of poetry, irony, metaphor is injected. It's just, and then this happened and then that happened. And it's, it's also portrayed as historical fact quite often. Um, and then a person reaches adolescence where they're, questioning everything and rejecting notions that are supernatural in many cases to them. And that's it. You know, it's, it's the, uh, if you want to get rid of the mice, just put, give them a bar mitzvah, you'll never see them again. Uh, they're gone. So what do, what is the answer? There is, I believe, a line in Torah that says, you're not to really discuss these major issues and ideas until a person is 20 years of age which when written would have meant mid-age, mid middle age at that point. But what do we do to correct the, the weakness of that kind of learning? Well, powerful question too, um, Ralph. Uh, maybe one of the reasons I'm still here kind of being deployed where I am in the United States, even though, you know, my heart, I'm, I'm a citizen of both countries. Uh, I don't use the term dual citizen because I'm a full citizen of both countries and there's no duality for me in that. That's a non-dual citizenship. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the question you ask gets formed by certain strands of Jewish life. And I understand this is a complex answer, but I feel that's how, how we need to engage people today, not in a reductionist way, because there never has been a Judaism, right? There's the Jewish people through which many Judaisms get expressed. And just like I was davening in our morning service on online this morning, Baruch Shemar, Baruch, Baruch Hu, like you are the many names. In the Kaddish, we say we lift up the great name, the name that holds many names. We have over a hundred different names for God in the Jewish tradition. So if, if someone is framed by a specific one, that's what we need to be careful of. You know, in, in the Ten Utterances, Ten Commandments is the usually get translated, but the Ten Utterances, the Ten Profound Core Life Values, the, the, the not making a graven image, the Hebrew pestle, leaf soul means to carve out a piece and make it the whole. So it doesn't say don't make statues or art. You know, my grandfather came from Europe. He was an artist. My great-grandfather, who was a rabbi, sent him to the Chicago School of Art from Winnipeg because Jews actually do that. You know, now, if I say my painting or my particular view or my definition of God, it trumps everything else, then I'm in that pestle land. I'm starting to elevate a particular refraction or color from the prism of divinity into the whole. And that's what, what, what um, the Jewish approach really to spiritual life in its in most ancient way is. So as you were framing some of the conundrum of don't ask questions, or this is just the you know the way it is. That's some strands of Judaism, but in the 
evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, as Mordecai Kaplan, you know, framed it. Sometimes if we go back to the most traditional, you'll find things that subvert what we call tradition today. You know, I, you know, I'm a liturgical composer. I visited synagogues that have corrected me after a service and said, you know, my cantor sings that piece that you did today, you might want to check with them because I think you got it wrong. <laughs> I don't say to them, but I wrote it and it's on my CD. They're like, that's tradition, right? You know, right. tradition is more often what we have gotten used to rather than going back to the sages in the Talmud, for example, who are debating, do we listen, listen to God's voice? No, actually, God gave us, you know, the ability to come to our own assessments now. Thank you, God, very much. We'll take it from here. You know, like very what we might consider radical and subversive ideas, but, but and that's where the tradition is derived from. So I think we need to approach it with subtlety, approach to use maybe not the best analogy, but the end user, meaning when I'm, I'm working with young people or others, or you know, in spiritual direction, when someone presents something, for me, that's a place of curiosity. Tell me more. Why do you hold that God is that way and that you've lost your faith because so-and-so died of cancer or this happened and God must have done that. Okay, and but, so but I what, don't feel like what happens with the kid when you say, and then the Red Sea parted, and then we came through and the Egyptians were drowned, and then manna came from heaven, and then the kid thinks, wow, wow, cool, and then starts to think, what, come on, that stuff doesn't, like, what do we do with the disconnect from the stories? How do we reframe them? in a way that a child could understand, but is still giving well, more you, meaning. Yeah, the way you presented it though already is, that's not, I think, necessarily the way you and I would present it. So I feel, you know, back to the Torah, that the truth is in our hands in our own heart, not across the sea or up in heaven, you know, which is the whole Deuteronomic replay of everything, try to interpret in light of current, uh, you know, reality. So I don't want to outsource that. I think that's where I need to start. Whoever the them is that told the story, am I one of those people or am I bringing in, well, let's take a look at this. And, and even the Midrash, you know, centuries and centuries old that says, well, what was mana? Oh, it might've been coriander seed. It could have been this. Moses was a shepherd. He knew the currents. You know, we don't um, pre-scientific thought. Already our ancestors we're holding a complexity of things in the variety of different interpretations where there was a, not an understanding or even what might be seen as contradictory terms or different narratives in the Torah. That was seen as majority minority or multiple lenses looking at something. And so, you know, we, we have a, a history of interpreting things in the light of, uh, I remember to your point directly, that um, uh, one of my former B'nai Mitzvah students and uh, Sam, sadly a blessed memory, life cut short just last uh, uh, summer in a tragic car accident. And Sam loved science and had been working his, he had Breshi, the, the beginning of Genesis was his Bar Mitzvah portion. And he was writing, we were going along, it wasn't always easy for him. And then we had a, a session I think a month before his bar mitzvah, where he just broke out, you know, in the session and just saying, this, I'm, this is not my truth. I can't, I can't go through with this. What I've written is not true to me. And, you know, and I said, well, what is your truth? He said, well, I believe in science and all these things. I said, well, let's write your truth. Because the Torah starts with the indefinite article. It's not in the beginning. That's a King James interpretation. B-Rashid is with beginning. Right? That's why the Kabbalists have alternative stories of creation, because there wasn't just the one moment in time. The idea that creation is constantly evolving. Behol yom tamid maseb reshit, as our um, liturgy says, every day creation is renewed again. And he rewrote it from that perspective. And he ended up writing about wonder and the universe and inequity, uh, you know, as he thought more about it between himself as a white Jewish person and his friends of color. How can creation, be, how can we be in the divine image? He didn't reject it. He found a road into it. How can we be in the divine image if my friends of color do not get the same access to education and books 
because of the school that they're in here. That led him to a sense of justice and wonder, which is the whole point, right? So I just feel that that um, that the the truth is there. It's not that we throw tradition out or we don't wrestle with it, because I could equally say to you one of the things I see today, and in your opening, as you called it, rant, but your know, your profound words, you talked about the rampant individualism. Mm. So is it? the king is dead, long live the king, meaning I dethrone God and put myself in the center and my own individualism, and there's no communitarian connection or no sense of I'm going to shovel my neighbor's walk because, you know, so so I like to challenge us in a 360 way that if we dethrone the Malach energy, like the sovereign king or the supernatural wonder worker, right. what is in that place? Is that a cover for our own ego or is that an inquiry into wonder and curiosity and co connection in this universe? Well, very well said. I, I think about a lot about in spiritual life, the difference between the ego system and the ecosystem. And oh, I, I believe, yeah, I believe we live in an ego system where we're at the top of a pyramid of, of, uh, of life on this planet and everything is to feed us. And ecosystem is to know uh, in our humility that we have many different places of connection within a circle of life. And we're not there. And one of the things when I think about spiritual life is the frame in which we work is that of extractive capitalism. And it is the idea of extracting all resources for the maximization of profit, including those within a human being itself. So if that's where we're at, how does that, how can we continue to encourage that paradigm of existence and still think that we can get a spiritual life? Or does the spiritual life, as it has been many times for people, get compartmentalized into, I'll go to the high holiday service, or I'll go maybe once a Saturday every month or two, uh, because they can't live it in a system that exploits and extracts and is, is not just secular, that's just a misnomer to me, but is non, lacks humanity, lacks spirituality. You know, the Pope writes beautifully, like if you write, read his encyclical on climate change, and if you listen to, to the ideologies that they try sometimes to present, they're, they're socialists, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's a communal life. And I know in America, socialists, you must have put, burned your head on fire for saying it. In Canada, obviously. Well, I, I, I hear it in the Canadian tongue with which you are uttering the word. So, yes. You know, for, so, you know, as so, we would so, grow up, democracy and social good are not antithetical to each other. So how, how do we create a, a, a spiritual community in a system that atomizes us and separates us on a constant basis to compete with each other, to extract the most from each other. How do we do that? Uh, well, if I had the immediate answer for you, I think I would be, uh, you know, a spin doctor or something like that, or, you know, wanting to jump out of the conundrum. Um, I will, I will say in terms of, flashes that arose for me as I was hearing you speak. Um, and, and again, as you said in the beginning and, and oriented us to this time, these pandemic times or the plague, as you call it, the makot, you know, in Hebrew, we translate as plagues, but it means the hittings, you know, the bruising, the ouches, right? So we're in this, in this time, uh, you know, of, of profound ouches. And it's all, also what arose for me as you were speaking is that no relation in terms of uh, COVID being a designation for this virus, but you know, in Hebrew, uh, kavod uh, means a weightiness, a liveriness, and an honorific and great honor, right? So it pivots. So as you were saying that, I was thinking like, you know, my my experience of the spiritual life is one of flexidology and the possibility of pivoting while remaining grounded in a set of values and and ethical and religious perspectives, uh, but not being ground down. Like even in English, there's the, those multiple, being grounded and being ground down uh, are very different ideas, right? So there, there are forces at work and, you know, there are also ways of using the tradition itself 
to also challenge what people's concepts of this is just the way it is, right? Um, and I grew up, you know, with that. Even the village, uh, the story my my Zeta Aaron Zevit uh, told of his family back in Russia, that he wanted to be a, an artist. I think, as I mentioned earlier, and my great grandfather, who I knew and loved, uh, he lived till I was, I think, around eleven or so. Um, ben Sion, you know, was uh, for me just such a benign, loving person that the equation of the ritual when he led the Pesach Seder and dressed in his white kittle, for me, there was awesomeness in that as opposed to punitiveness. Now, I also went to Talmud Torah, Hebrew school. So there I received the lashes and, you know, <laughs> you know, my hair pulled out and getting hit over the head with a, you know, a book or something, but not, not at home where I was presented with an, a very different uh, approach that way. And my Zeta Aaron talked about his uncle Tsioma who wanted to be a painter in Russia and was told, well, our tradition says you don't create images. The day, it was like a jazz singer moment. The day you come in with brushes is your last day in this house. And that's what happened to him. Uh, whereas my grandfather, under his father, who was the same generation from the same village, was supported to go to the Chicago Art School because creativity is a divine value. It suffuses our tradition, right? And therefore, we want to support you to be able to, you know, to to do this. Uh, so, so, so one could say then and now. No, the stories told in my family said it could be all of then or all of now. It could be this system or that system. Now, how are you going to choose? As our tradition also says, I, I place in you today blessing and curse, life and death. Now, what are you going to choose? So, you know, I hear what you're saying, Ralph, in terms of the societal setup, and at the same time, see the planet arising and not being quiet anymore, right? Visiting on us, we may say, oh, where did these plagues come from? Just like in ancient Egypt, you can look at all that, the big ouches there, uh, you know, or the plagues yeah. there and say, oh, unconscious lack of proper agrarian practices and this and that and the other thing and dumping stuff in the water you know there it is we already have a track record of the disregard for the planet what that produces so we're not going to get out of this one no matter how much we barricade ourselves in ivory towers uh, i think so many of us are are on the ground now coming from a different place of a reconnecting it's not the disregard of the ego but the ego in service of the eco, the ecology. We don't want people to be just wet noodles, right? We want, you know, individual creativity and systemic change and things like that. So, so that's how I approach it. I reach in to some of the very tradition, traditions beyond just one, science, uh, health and well-being, people around me, uh, my own heart. And in that mix, I see so much potential that I don't have to buy into the tropes that are necessarily self-destructive and disempower myself because, quote, that's the way it is. Well, we contributed to that's the way it is. It didn't just appear that way. So clearly we can do something about it. Our, our will, um, the equity to do something in our countries, how we vote and who we put in power, how we organize. Um, you know, these are, these are things that I've seen the capacity and certainly being involved with justice and faith organizations here um, in, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and some larger places, I've seen us bend that arc of the moral universe to get, you know, now possibly all funding put through a fair funding formula that doesn't, uh, you know, prejudice um, communities of, of color or get, got a living wage or uh, for the first time city council in Philadelphia due to lobbying of some of the members of my uh, congregation has banned certain chemicals from being used in different uh, places. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a great waking up uh, to not go to sleep in the midst of this because of the way things are. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that'll turn the tide, uh, what we're in well, for. You, only, you can only do what you do. Like you can only, you can't think, well, it, what I get often from people is what difference can I possibly make? Right. And that's not necessarily a good place to come from for any kind of societal change. You could, but on the other hand, uh, 
I think it's important to try to agitate for changing the playing field instead of constantly asking the player to make the change. I can sit here sorting my garbage into paper and plastic and wet and dry, uh, and then 67% uh, of it doesn't even reach the, the recycling depot. Uh, so if we don't care, we don't care. If we continue to sprawl our environment and we continue to consume, like one of the things that's happening now is the crisis of consumption. We can't just mindlessly go anywhere to just pass time and feel better. And it's like Seinfeld's old bit about going to buy something. He buys the shoes and he goes, and by the, you know, I love the shoes when I buy them, but by the time I get home, I don't really like them that much anymore. So what have I done, right? He's doing this. The act of buying them, right? That's all it is. And, and so that's how we, we fill our souls with these empty uh, gestures of, uh, faux immortality. If I get the bigger house and the better car, I'll, I'll never die. But, you know, in part of the uh, aging and saging work, when I do a workshop, I ask them to write their obituary, like, you know, one of the things that we learn to do. Uh, and uh, my goodness, they live to 100. And I say, well, think about it. Where's your mother? Dead. Where's your spouse? Probably dead. Everybody you know is dead. It's really, it's, you know, getting old is not for sissies, as you know, Reb Nadia would tell me. And it's really just a question of how do we value the time we have now and how do we make spiritual exchange possible with each other, whether it be within our own religious groupings or interfaith wise, as a unity as opposed to a duality. And yet I still see that we think in these ways. Let me ask you this. How has, from being a child to now, and this one's a toughie, how, how has your, when someone says, what is God? Or when you thought, what is God? How did it start and where is where's it gotten to? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think, was it Karen Armstrong who wrote The Evolution of God? Uh, you know, like there's been a number of books about you know, tracking even within the Hebrew Bible and beyond our own evolution of our understanding of, or some people might say the evolution of God or God consciousness. And we, I mean, you and I know that Germanic root of that word means to bring forth or evoke. So as Reb Zalman and Rabbi David Cooper now, blessed memory said, you know, God is a verb. So let's hold our premise that if we create God as a noun, we are back in the place of idolatry. You know, the, the root word in Hebrew and English is all an active principle. Uh, and so how we use the descriptor activates a certain biochemical, mental, emotional, and physical construct. And, you know, that's what we need to, to pay attention to, what deflates, what motivates. Um, you know, are we stuck in the noun, uh, you know, of life, or are we, you know, in faith in action uh, right. by understanding that God, uh, you know, is a verb? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I want to go there. And as you were talking, I was just wondering... It'll be so interesting to see where we as humanity go because of, quote, the plague, as you mentioned to it, how that has uh, exposed inequities that we could have hidden behind in our societies, how that has also flattened access. You know, those of us that have been working through the technologies who are, on one hand, you know, and I'll include myself, as soon as the Zoom service is all over or the ritual or the program, there's a certain deflation and an emptiness about not being able to talk with you, you know, over a slice of your mustard, uh, you know, from your sponsor, <laughs> whatever it may be, uh, you know. And at the same time, everyone is has a front row seat. The level of intimacy that people tell me they've experienced, the fact that they're not in row twenty or even in the circle some way, you know, off to the side or third row, but everybody can be scanned and is, uh, you know, if they choose to reveal themselves. So what's going to happen in India when because they've been able to see mountains that were obscured by smog for decades, but they're seeing them now. Will the human soul be willing to go back to blindness once things have been revealed? So that's not as easy to do as if you keep the blinders on yourself or by authoritarian structures. So I think there's something itself very interesting about the, the pain and the human suffering of our time and the amount of lives lost and also the dust it has kicked up and the dust that has cleared out, including our spending. 
you know, for many of us, uh, my wife and I were just talking the other day about like, you know, oh, well, we, you know, we did better than expected this year because look at all the frivolous things we didn't spend on because <laughs> we weren't out there caught by the shiny object, you know, in the way you were talking about the shoes. So I think in, in, in some ways to, to treat our own spiritual lives as a evolving project unfolding and not as a beginning and end destination. I mean, my own personal experience of God's presence in my life was palpable uh, from a child. I mean, I also witnessed, um, you know, elders in my life, uh, you know, with, with deep piety. Uh, you know, I remember my grandmother, uh, Rose, who um, took a journey over a decade in Alzheimer's, one day crying out, screaming from the bedroom, and my grandfather and I running in, what, 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 what? And she's like, look at the sunset. Have you ever seen such a great sunset? And suddenly the two of us who were busy just doing were, were enrolled in her, being. you know, awesome, awesome, in her being in awe of the sunset and that moment. And so, but, but my know, first a God was a cop. My first God was a cop, right? Watching me, uh -huh. making sure I behave myself, yes. uh, judging me, uh -huh. my morality. Uh, and that was the God I had for a long time. You're saying even as a small child, you didn't have that uh, officer God. You had an experiential well, I God. Had, I mean, I also had Hebrew day school and, you know, the the Punisher definitely was there and, the, and being sent to the office and, you know, a variety of things. But for me, I experienced God very personally, had those dialogues, felt that presence. And then interestingly enough, around the time of my bar mitzvah, I felt that God leave very mm -hmm. profoundly one night. Like I was growing up and that God would be with me, but wasn't going to be with me as a child anymore. And for me, more so than the vague remembrances I have of the actual day was my bar mitzvah. And I, rem and I still have the papers that I wrote to God about, you know, my feelings about this and the sense of God asking me to grow up, but not, you know, not abandoning me, but at the same time, not necessarily going to be the same way. Um, and then we moved to Australia. I went to public school and I kind of left that God project and even hmm. active uh, spiritual practice until my early 20s uh, when um, with a, uh, one of my professors from York University, Alan Richardson, and a band of us formed Trinity Theater at the time. And that began a decade-long exploration of deep social and spiritual and Canadian history. And that reawoke in me something as a young adult uh, and evolutions then of the input of psychology and theology and the whole variety and, and, and the public welfare and social justice all mixed in to impact that. And what I will say to fast forward this, Ralph, is that over time, then the um, uh, the vicissitudes of life, uh, you know, the relationships come and gone, uh, the ending of a first marriage, various miscarriages, uh, you know, jobs that ended in certain ways, relationships that for me, mysteriously, how can a friendship end or drift away my, my own naivete that something wouldn't just remain eternal in that, I started to feel some of my own sense of um, where is God in this? And I remember, or what is, not just where anymore, but what is, and am I creating this as a panacea against my own suffering? Or is God the call to enter more deeply into it and to accept more of reality rather than have a construct that buffers me and falsely comforts me? From the suffering in the world and within myself. And I remember just before the last conversation I had with, with Reb Zalman before he died about a month, because uh, every now and then he used to bust in on my Skype at, the, at that time, <laughs> Skype, not Zoom calls. You know, and I'd be in the middle of something and go, no, so what's happening? <laughs> I think, oh, can I call you back in 10? I'm just finishing with something. So, you know, like it was very sweet. So I got back to it. I, I said, you know, I really got, I, I'm really struggling here in my own life with the idea of belief. And I remember he said to me, um, and, I, and I've been in spiritual direct, and even though I, uh, or as a requirement of being right. a spiritual director. So since 1999, and now I was training people as well. And I found even with my own spiritual director, when I started to bring up issues, some of which you have articulated, 
beautifully in your questions today. What about this or how can this be? And having my spiritual director invite me to be with the question, to almost see that God was a power inviting me to let God go in order to find the new truth emerging and not be stuck, kind of chained to an idea that was no longer serving. And the way Reb Zalman reflected it when I said question about belief, he said, well, don't be so arrogant to talk about does God exist or not, because that's beyond your and my pay grade to talk about existence. But belief, believe in God, don't believe in God, challenge the beliefs, open to the new ones. That's the living God, as, as King David would say in the Bible. Mine is the living God, Elohim Chaim, which for me has always been profound. Is If those God ideas are deadening you or dead to you, then they're no longer the living God. It's become a fossil. And so that has been helpful to me to both feel into the suffering of the loss of a God I might have known and felt kinship with, and at the same time be open to, as we said before, every child, half of the children that come through or the adults, um, staying in this conversation. I offered uh, a, a course at the synagogue a couple years ago, uh, Finding God, you know, Modern Paths. And, it, you know, a lot of people were there all over the map, people that came in with the sense of, I feel a personal direction in my life and a, and a being that is part of that, that I can rely on, uh, right down to humanist, uh, you know, um, viewpoints of we have God as a construct by which we measure our pain, you know, quote John Lennon and so on. So and all the things in between. And what I found fascinating that for me, God is a concept big enough to not have to have me defend. Or as Thomas Merton once said, you can tell a level of a person's religious insecurity by with the loudness which with they proclaim their beliefs. You know, so, well, you know, I mean, so to me, I, spirituality, the, the anathema of spirituality is certainty. There's the arrogance. Okay. When someone, you know, I was, I was listening to somebody give a talk about um, Kabbalistic notions of the afterlife, and he was into such architectural detail of the afterlife. And I thought, how on earth can you be that sure of something that we can't possibly be that sure of because we're not in an afterlife. And I realized that there's a, for some people, what they call faith is really a, a, a desire to cling to certainty. And I guess the effects of Eastern religion on me have been very healthy in my life in terms of not seeing two things. One is the duality. There's me and then there's this God thing uh, I see it as I'm a molecular piece of something unknowable, but seriously happening at this moment in time. And that's enough. I don't need to uh, put a name to it. I certainly don't think there's a, a file being kept with Ralph on it. Uh, so I'm, I'm really just um, seeing things as the spiritual part of our lives is the part that animates. And when you were speaking about the turning point for you to return to me, what I heard was it was like some of your relatives, art. It was art, theater, music, the guitar, your gift, and that that stuff transcends rationality. We can all be as clever as we like about what we think religions are, but that isn't really what matters. You know, I still I say to people all the time, the person who lives in, in uh, Croatia and doesn't speak a word of English goes to a U2 concert and waves their hand in the air and has their, their phone going, still haven't found. They don't care if they know the words. People go in and, and sing in Hebrew. And if I interrupted them halfway through the, the prayer, I'd say, what are you saying right now in English? They haven't a clue. 50 years of singing that song and they haven't a clue. And it doesn't matter. It's the non-rational that allows them to experience something that is about the interconnectivity of everything. As you know, Rabbi Waskow says, you know, breathe life into the tree, the tree breathes life into you. You know, he's got a new book about this, right? right. So these things to me are, are the spiritual aspects that we, you can't, in a rational world, they've become more and more difficult for us to, like you want a buzzkill at a dinner party, say God. And people are like, oh, that's so cute. You actually believe in God. And they think I, that, that they know what I, that means for me to believe in God. But mm. that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just 
trying to accept that I am part of something so much bigger than I could possibly imagine and just bending my knee to it. Right? Okay. It's, it's a strange well, thing. And which is, if you look at the roots of the practice, of course, that's where it comes from. You know, we, our tradition does come from the, the Middle East and from the East that way. So even the idea of dominion over the world, mm. again, a translation into Old English, when you think of mastery in Eastern religions, right? I don't see, uh, you know, a huge truck, uh, you know, unearthing, uh, you know, a former forest or cutting down trees. I see someone who's like centered, who has mastery, uh, I think of Zen practitioners, some of the ancient sages who were able to uh, align themselves with nature and, and you know, and work on those patterns, uh, you know, be, be healing agents and so on. So the idea of mastery coming from the Hebrew rather than dominion over the earth is it requires alignment and in fact, less effort, right? I mean, you see that in so many of the the Asian pictures, for example, you know, like all the newbies are using their powers and whatever, and the master is sitting there and goes, <laughs> you know, and four trees fall over, right? You know, so, you know, it's that aspect of being in alignment with all of nature and creation uh, and having mastery over one's impulses, the power with instead of power over. So we can draw on some of these concepts for the prime challenges that we face in life today. And I, I know we're, we're at our time um, at this point too, but I, I just want to uh, maybe come back to you for a moment. And I'm intrigued to, there's no, the table is round between us, so there's no turning <laughs> the table, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know where our conversation, which, you know, just was organic in its own way, um, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, count these steps there, where, where this has left you, if there's something you're leaving our conversation with that uh, may be affirming or different than from where we began. So I'm left with the differences between being and doing in a society obsessed with doing that leaves almost no room for being. And I wonder because you work in the organizational, institutional aspects of, of, of Judaism, not just, you know, having nice thoughts and reading nice books, you have congregational responsibilities and duties, and you are uh, extremely uh, committed to social action and social justice. And I wonder if people listening uh, wouldn't want to know what is is there an eco-social, uh, an eco-spiritual movement that they can find their way into? Uh, because I think a lot of the progressive movement, as it's labeled, prides itself in its secularism. And that the right, as it's called, prides itself in its religio religiosity. And that neither is working very well for either side. They're both being perverted. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I want to, I'm going to turn it. The, the lazy Susan is now moving in the other direction, my friend. Um, <laughs> uh, the eco-spiritual. Where are we at on the eco-spiritual? Mm. Well, I think um, uh, sorry. Um, I think we're fortunate to live in an age, and, I, and this is me coming off the four-day Jewish climate change festival online that mm. had like hundreds of speakers and, and hundreds of thousands of participants and dozens of workshops and all the rest of that through Chazon, which is the largest um, uh, in the United States Jewish uh, environmental organization, but also thinking of 350.org. Uh, you know, McKinnon and, and the whole gang of which many of us are, are a part, local initiatives that many churches, synagogues, mosques, Buddhist temples, and so on are involved with. Um, you know, plus here I know in Philadelphia through our power interfaith, which is a, a chapter of faith in action nationally, which is a multi-faith uh, justice network, uh, you know, we're on the ground floor of climate justice, which includes addressing racial inequities, um, not just environmental ones. And, and separating them leaves a whole group of people in the world 
or in our own communities out. So that climate justice action, and we are getting our energy providers to change. We're seeing laws reenacted. So I think in that place where um, you can be both contemplative and activist and find your way in your moment in calling, some of us will hit the streets, sit in at the energy uh, office and so on, but others of us are, you know, need to be changing the diapers and paying attention to the little ones who are going to be the next generation's head of the right. echo faith or but where's the god where's so where the god in the where is the god is the god well, it's, it's is that. god necessary in this action well god is the fuel or the spiritual vibrancy or the language and all the places i just mentioned to you they're not um secular organizations they're bringing in faith and culture uh, and religious life as a catalyst, as a proof text to the very action that we're doing, and then respecting all the variations in that ecumenical diverse table. Uh, and for me then, you know, saying, well, if we really believe that we are uh, divine emanations, uh, then how are we treating each other this way? And so uh, I right. see the inspiration and the, the the energizing. I see them in kids who do their bar bat mitzvah projects at our synagogue, half of whom choose environmental topics uh, to do. Uh, you know, um, and here I'll leave you with this this ex example. Um, you may not leave our conversation, but I'll for this particular piece. <laughs> uh, two years ago, we we have a um, mitzvah family fun. We we ask everyone to. This invite is the before the bar mitzvah. B'nai mitzvah for people who don't yes. know before bar mitzvah. Exactly yes. right. So. The families contribute. We say, don't buy each other gifts. There's enough stuff, like you've pointed out, in the world. Let's contribute to a fund. And then I work with the kids at the end of the year. Where did that money get directed based on what their own families you know, have raised? So we do a values-based process where we study Jewish texts on, you know, and then uh, on, on leadership and giving. And then uh, people put in their ideas where they want the funds directed. Uh, the last few years, environmental causes, number one. No hmm. one even wants to consider anything else. Hmm. But here was the beauty for me of our young people. So, okay, we're all in that. What Now, where does it go? Four different organizations get mentioned. Three national and one local happen to be power that we're part of, I mentioned before. And so they start debating and they say, well, you know, the oceans are messed up. We can give it to the Clean the Ocean or the Save the Whatever Fund. But they get other monies, and they're so global that that response is so big. I don't know what impact we'll have, and and then you know the conversation shifts to, well, aren't we part of this organization that's actually working to change energy patterns here in the city of Philadelphia? And immediately everyone had consensus that that's where the money should go, because we could have direct and immediate impact in our own city, not on some elusive larger piece that will in fact have impact on that larger use of energy and our tradition and our faith and our spiritual language helped us derive there to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. So that means I actually got to pay attention to my neighbor, not the concept of neighbor, right. but my actual neighbor. And so that drove them to do that. You know, power sent uh, a rabbi to receive the check and we did a big thing and the kids got lauded and they felt more motivated as a result. So I see those direct actions where faith, uh, the local is global, the personal is political, not just the sayings, but as catalysts and inspirational aspects to do the holy work that you and I have been talking about for the last, I think, six hours at this point. <laughs> global, so for me, a spiritual Jewish gift to the world would be a global Sabbath project. That to, that to me, because if the world one day of the week had a real Sabbath, you would reduce GHG emissions, somebody said, 12% per year, right there. If we could find a way to, to, this is our greatest gift as Jews. This is what I feel. Sabbath is the greatest gift we have. The Sabbath year, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath half century, the 49 years. I mean, to me... That is us being able to just say, one day of being, six days of doing is enough because we're on seven days of, of, of doing and we can't sustain it. So I'd love, I'd love that to be a, a, a destination. 
All right. I'm going to let you go. Well, you know, I, I, I want, want to say to what you just said, though, that that for our listeners to think of that Sabbath consciousness, not only as a practice. So I like to ask myself, there are traditional categories in the Jewish tradition of what comprises that. But to think globally in that way means applying a Sabbath consciousness, not just a prescribed you know, series yes. of, of acts that way, because not everybody is on the same level of observance or interpretation. But I don't want us to give us an out so that we say, oh, that's for religiously observant people. Now, right. if I take the consciousness, the attributes of the being doing of the stepping away from, um, you know, consumerism and so on, not necessarily stepping away from technology, but thinking, how am I going to use this differently? I'm going to go for a walk today. I am going to watch a movie, but Sabbath consciousness says I'm going to watch a movie about a documentary about part of the earth or loving relationships. I'm not going to see something blown up and destroyed on the Sabbath. You know, uh, that leaves us with three movies to watch. But at the same time, you know, like so. So for I, I want our listeners to think not not just what am I going to do in the realm of being, but how am I going to think and frame the questions of Sabbath consciousness as well as Sabbath practice. Ah, Rabbi, I love talking to you. It's wonderful. You know that I love, I love being with you too. You know Whether that Bachelor Levine thing? You know that Bachelor Levine thing? I love that. I love that woman's voice. She's fantastic. All right. I want you to take care of yourself. A blessing for you, for all that you do for all the people that you care for, for all the passion you have in your heart for this world and for our relationships to each other. And we never even talked about our work with men, but we'll do that on another podcast. But for all of what you do and all that you've done for me, I bless you and I'm thankful that you're part of my life and part of this world. Amen to that, mine too. How can the uh, the listeners find this in the future, uh, as well as get the free coffee cup if they listen to this? Thank you for pointing that out. This show is brought to you by Koplansky's Mustard, my friends. Uh, you got to try Koplansky's Mustard. It's at koplanskysdeli.com. Uh, and it's got a, a code that you can use, NTKR. Koplansky's is also a Terminal 3 in Pearson Airport. Great smoked meat. Purveyor, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm sure it's great. Purveyors of world-class mustard delivered to your door. Who knew? And uh, Rabbi, if people want your music, which I love, how can they find you and uh, purchase some of that music and listen to it? Oh, well, thank you, my friend. Um, stuff is is uh, up on YouTube and uh, eBay and Amazon, uh, you know, carry all my CDs and then the usual suspects, you know, uh, iTunes, oisongs.org uh, mm. carries a lot of Jewish artists. So uh, you can just, uh, you know, Google Z-E-V-I-T or to translate south of the 49th, Z-E-V-I-T, and uh, you'll find that material there. So. <laughs> He said the Z word. <laughs> we need you back here. I want it to be inclusive. Yeah, come home one day. God willing, you should come home. Okay. All right, you take I, care I, of yourself. I'm working on it, brother. Lots of love. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye. podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. 
Visit RomePhone.ca to get started.